everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Blackware Intelligence Podcast. This week, we have a very special guest, my buddy, Jay Gold. Jay, thanks for coming on last minute, and uh, we're happy to have you on. Thanks for having me on. Cool. So I, I wanted to start, first of all, with um, let's just give everyone a, a background of who you are, what you do, um, and then we can kind of transition into kind of your early days in, involved in business. But let's just first start with um, who you are and, and what do you do kind of on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I'm number one, dad, husband. So most of my time, as you know, it's, it's at the house. I don't have like a day job. Um, previously, I was an entrepreneur, started and sold several different companies. I'm an angel investor and uh, I run a, a YouTube channel myself. And so I interview a bunch of people. And uh, But I, an angel investor, I'm mostly an angel investor. That's kind of where I spend most of my time evaluating deals, uh, getting into deals when I can. And, uh, and then obviously I'm a Bitcoiner. Sweet. And, and so to start with, let's just... <clears throat> talk about like your early upbringing, early life. Um, and then as well as like, you know, playing football in college and, and, you know, start with the early days and then we'll kind of work our way into Yashi and all that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I grew up in New Jersey on the Jersey shore. <clears throat> um, socio, socio, and comic background is, I'd say it was like middle-class. I wouldn't even say it was maybe even lower middle-class, but it was kind of like middle-class. My dad was a carpenter. Um, my mom was a homemaker. And, uh, so we didn't have a lot, but we weren't poor, you know, we were like everybody else in America, right? Um, parents had a lot of debt, obviously, trying to make ends meet. Um, in the 1990s, in the early 90s, we had a recession. I remember that kind of had an impact on me, the way I thought about kind of money and what I wanted to do in the world, you know? <clears throat> um, but then, you know, I was an athlete growing up. And uh, the first thing I thought I would get my millions in is I thought I would go pro in the NFL. That you look at me, that wasn't going to happen, <laughs> but I didn't seem to figure that out until I was later. I played college football, as you said. Um, I, was, I was pretty good in college. Um, I would, I didn't play for division one. I. I was a one double A school and then I transferred to division three school. So um, yeah. So for the first 20 plus years of my life, I was focused on sports, but I was also building websites with people that I knew that programmers and I had ideas for things. So in the beginning, I built all kinds of e-commerce websites. I, I wrote a book. I sold uh, a book that I had written, like a self-published thing. Sold thousands of copies of that just based on internet marketing strategies. Uh, then I started getting into like social media stuff. I built a dating site, a social network. I built the first video sharing and bed site. Uh, then I built a video advertising network. I've raised money from lots of interesting people like Reed Hoffman and Josh Koppelman from First Round Capital started half.com <clears throat> Raj Kapoor from uh, Snapfish, um, the Mayfield fund. Uh, I've had, I'd had hedge fund guys invest in my companies that manage billions of dollars. So I've had like a breadth of experience, just serendipitously kind of like different people in different walks of life, all kind of, kind of coming at me in different angles and different perspectives, perspectives of the world, um, which I think is completely shaped the way I think um, differently than my peers. Um, because of like different parts of my life. We talked about this bunch well, because you're a little bit younger, you're going to have a huge, you know, uh, imp- all these people are going to have a huge impact on the way you think, you know, and it's the same thing that happened to me. I'm watching it play out in real time with you. Um, but yeah, so started off uh, athlete kind of went into entrepreneurial stuff. I had one job out of college. I only had one job. I worked for CDW selling it equipment and I it just felt like a waste of time, but I was there cause I thought I needed like health insurance and stuff. Uh, eventually got a tap on the shoulder on a Friday and was like, you're always working on your business when you're sitting at your desk, you're fired. <laughs> and I was like, what took you so long? <laughs> uh, about a year in and then uh, never, never had another job again. The only other job I ever had was uh, when I sold my company, uh, you work for the buyer when that, that happens for a little while. Um, but yeah, made a lot of investments, started investing like 10 years ago. Um, 
you know, I'm invested in like 80 something companies uh, that are privately held businesses. Mostly, I would say like 95% of them are technology companies. I think they're all technology companies in some ways because they have some part of their business is, is related to technology, but some have more of a focus that are outside of tech and stuff and biotech as well. Um, but yeah, then, then I bought Bitcoin. I saw my company in 2015, Will, and um, you know, I, I started to buy into Bitcoin in 2016, about a year later. Uh, very dismissive of Bitcoin. We actually had a customer at my company that wanted to pay us in Bitcoin every month, which I'll never forget because... I would have a lot of Bitcoin if I took it, <laughs> but I used to say no, tens of thousands of dollars in 2013 or something like that. Uh, I just was like, nah, what the hell is this magic internet money crap? You know, I uh, wasn't paying attention, thought I was smarter than the world, thought what I was doing was the right thing to do. And, and it was good. It created a lot of wealth for me and my family, but, but um, was totally dismissive of Bitcoin initially. I just, did, I thought it was a Ponzi scheme or something initially, you know, because I didn't look into it at all. Hey, Jay, um, but, one, one thing not a lot of people know is that you're Chad. So talk, talk, talk about that. I, I think people yeah. get a kick out of that. I'm like, when did, when did you find this out? This is this is pretty momentous. Yeah. So I used to hide from it, actually. It's really funny. And like all the different, uh, they call them incels, right? Like people like talk on these message boards, but they used to talk about um, this Chad character that they, that they made. And uh, they must've found a photo of me on MySpace or something. And I guess I had like, the, I guess I had the look of what they thought chat should look like. I don't know. So I became the meme. At least my photo became the meme for what we call now Chad, which is so funny because like now, now they call Michael Saylor Giga Chad, right? I'm like baby Chad, <laughs> you know? uh, but I was the original Chad. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a true story. It's funny. Um, if you go on like, I guess, like the meme websites and stuff, uh, like 4chan and stuff, like my photo was the original Chad, which is so weird. Now, in the beginning, I, I, I kind of, I, I showed my wife, I was like, oh my God, look at this thing. And the Chad meaning... Uh, at least as I understood it, was like this dumb jock that he, he gets all the girls when he's younger. And then when he gets older, you know, uh, he's like Al Bundy, like, you know, and uh, and then they found out, oh, no, this guy became a multimillionaire in tech. Fuck, Chad never loses. <laughs> so it was kind of funny, you know, because at first it was like a, it was like a knock if you're a dumb jock. And then later it was like, Chad doesn't ever fucking lose. <laughs> how, did you, how did you find out? Somebody sent it to me, um, you know, one of my tech friends like was just like, dude, is this you? And I was like, that is me. What the hell is that crap? So I started looking into it and I was like, oh my God, I showed it to my wife. She's like, you know, I don't want our kids to ever see this crap. <laughs> you know? I would be flexing it. I would be like, hey, look on Twitter. I'd be like in my bio, like I'm the original Chad. I, <laughs> well, that's I what Hoddle be... said. Yeah, yeah. American Hoddle was like, you got to own this. And I was like, I've been hiding for it for like a long time. In fact, in the beginning, we used to send takedown notices. My lawyers, I would be like, send a takedown notice, get it off their, their, their message board or whatever. But then Hoddle was telling me, he's like, you, you created what's known as the, the Streisand effect. Like you try to take it down, it just perpetuates even faster and more. Yeah. I had no idea and it did. And then it just became like a life and zone. But I think the change, the, the meaning of chat has kind of changed a little bit than what it was a decade ago. So yeah. it's cool now. Yeah. So this is like a fun little fact about, I don't think a lot of people know that about you, but no. yeah, that, that's pretty funny. Um, I want to talk to you about like the kind of beginning of, of founding Yashi. Uh, and just like, I want to walk through the process of like starting a business. So let's like just start at the very beginning, like, you know, getting the idea for this. How did the, how did that process even like, you know, begin from just deciding, Hey, I have this idea to like putting it into work. So I imagine a lot of it is just like, you're kind of learning on the fly. So just like very beginning, talk us through that, that process. So for, so for Yashi, it was originally called Gamers Media, which was an ad network for casual game websites, which was born out of this idea when I was running the previous company, Bolt, Bolt.com, which was the, actually Bolt.com was the original social network, 1996. They were one of the first social networks, if not the very first social network. 
Um, and the founder of that company is this guy named Aaron Cohen. So Aaron uh, saw that I had a rising video sharing site and they were declining in traffic and I was rising, rising rapidly. So they reached out, they wanted to do an acquisition of my company. So I sold to them for stock, um, became a third partner with him and this guy named, you probably know him, Lou Kerner, right? Cause Lou's like a crypto guy. So Lou and Aaron were the founders of Bolt and then they bought my company. I became a partner in that business. Um, they had a side business there to help monetize the business a little bit. They would uh, they would go out and like sign exclusive agreements to sell the advertising for US based audiences on miniclip.com, RuneScape, all these gaming websites. So when we got sued a couple of years later, we got sued by Universal Music. We we basically went out of business. We had to file bankruptcy. Actually, we didn't technically file bankruptcy. We filed an ABC assignment for the benefit of creditors. It's kind of like a bankruptcy. But um, but so we so we shut that business down. And uh, before we shut it down, I had this other idea that I was tossing around for a while when I was running Bolt with those guys, which was called WikiU. And the concept for that idea was, uh, you have to remember, not everybody in the world was using social media at the time. So it was like, well, how do you convince the, the, how do you convince the laggards to join a social network? So my thought was, well, don't convince them. Just create their own profile without their consent and let everybody edit it. So like Wikipedia meets MySpace. That was the idea. Um, we raised money from Reed Hoffman, Josh Koppelman, all these these really prolific kind of guys. Chamath Palhapatia was at the Mayfield Fund, which is part of the uh, investment. Um, so I spent a lot of time with all of them and built that business. And then that business failed, right? So I had two back-to-back -back failures. But I remember what we did at Bolt. And one of the things that we did really well was this, this site representation business, which is very agency-like. I thought, well, you know, I, I was trying to, to go for the gold, so to speak, with those businesses. I was really trying to build a business that is like in, in the gold world, it's like you're the gold miner when you're trying to build the uh, destination website. And so we tried to do that, obviously unsuccessful, a couple of attempts. I've had other businesses that were modestly successful at some exits, but nothing crazy. And um, I thought, you know what, let's just go into the picks and shovels business, right? Let's monetize all the video across the internet by building a technology. And it started off as an agency uh, like business where we would sign up all the casual game websites, go to the agencies, lock up uh, ads for those websites and, and kind of we built that business up. And uh, over the years, just took the profit, reinvested into research and development, hired programmers uh, and started building a demand side platform for online video. But then it turned into local video. We started to like corner the market and local and go after uh, car dealerships, doctors, lawyers, accountants, professional services that were buying spot television advertising. And so it's just like an evolution. Well, so basically, Everything I'm telling you is everything is a compounded effect. It's an evolution. And I just feel like that's kind of everything. Like every, there's really been no invention since the wheel, right? It's just a slight modification and an iteration. And so my career has just been an iterative process towards where I am today. And so Yashi, literally the business itself evolved from just, um, you know, a casual game website into broader video ad tech play. Did you, did you want to start a business? Like, was that always in your mind of like, Hey, I want to participate in some type of startup or was it like you saw this opportunity and like you saw some kind of value that you could add and then it originated from there um like i, I guess what i'm saying is like <laughs> yeah. like did, did it form from like you were actually interested in this thing or is it just like this interest to own a business and then you like found something that you could start a business with it, it started with i wanted to build things that would reach millions of people so initially it was like i saw things like aol instant messenger way back in the 90s and i saw how i was infatuated with this and like addicted to the behavior and all the different relationships i was building and i just thought wow how amazing would it be if i could actually build a platform like that so built a dating site sold it to a match that plc which owns jdate com and American Singles and a bunch of dating sites. And I realized there's a there there here. Like I, I can maybe just build businesses and sell them. <laughs> That's the original idea. 
I just thought I could keep doing that. Like I was young and naive, but then I quickly realized, no, I need to build something sustainable that can continue to grow. And as you start building all these businesses, you start reading different books, meeting different people, networking and realizing what you really needed to build. So I, I was infatuated with the idea of building community on the internet. I thought it was really cool and fascinating, right? So it started off in dating then social networking. And then it just, again, the evolution thing, it just, it kind of um, evolved into what the video sharing thing was because when I had this social network, a user actually put a music video on their profile. We allowed them to change the CSS and everything like MySpace. And that gave me the idea to build a directory of every music video ever. And that was music video codes. And then if you were on MySpace in like 2005, there's like a 95% chance if you saw a music video that came from us. And uh, so that scaled really big, tens of millions of users. Uh, at that time, the internet audience was smaller. So it was sizable in terms of uh, reach. I think we reached like 4% of the internet or something like that. Uh, at the time. And then um, when I built the, the the video advertising network, we got like 45% of, sorry, I'm getting a call here. We got 40, 45% of uh, all of the internet audience when we sold the Ashi, we were reaching, but not because they chose to, right? I just interviewed Bram Cohen, the BitTorrent founder recently. <clears throat> and what was amazing about his business in 2001 is that he reached like 35% of the audience, internet audience, but they downloaded and installed his tool <laughs> and they use it every day, right? Whereas with Lars, if you just happen to be on websites, we were serving a video ad to you or something. You didn't you didn't choose to do that, right? Um, but to your point, uh, I wasn't like, let me just create anything. I, I did have a passion for wanting to bring people together, build communities, and uh, kind of just evolved into... I didn't realize how big it could be, to be totally honest with you. When I built what is now what you see as YouTube, like the first version of that type of thing, I never thought that something like that, they say it's probably valued at like five to $700 billion today. Never in my wildest dreams that I think these things can get that big. And if you watch like early interviews from like Mark Zuckerberg sitting on a couch with like a solo cup drinking a beer with some of these guys interviewed him, it's like, I don't think he thought that this would be a trillion dollar company, right? Like nobody thinks where it can go when it gets there later. And a lot of that has to do with the interest rates and the Federal Reserve and all this kind of stuff. It kind of propped up asset values. and uh, But the network externalities of these businesses are what make them so uh, so strong, you know? Sure. And, and can you kind of talk us through the process of like meeting people, networking and kind of like strengthening your circle around you or like along the way? Is it just something that happens organically in terms of like you're just seeking answers or you're like looking for other like like minded people? And so you just start asking around with other. And I imagine like back then it was probably more difficult than now. Right. Because like I can just DM anybody. Yeah. Right. Versus like you didn't right. have that back then. So I'm curious how that thought, like that process worked back then. Well, the way it worked in my day, it's not that long ago, but a decade ago was you had to physically meet people. And so I used to fly back and forth to San Francisco a bunch um, and the Valley area. And so, uh, but I would, I would, I would go to a conference or something like that, get to meet people, business card trading and all this crap, you know, um, I didn't do a lot of that, but I, but I did do it. And uh, those relationships to this day, I, I still have relationships with people that I met in person. Today, it's different. You're, to your point, you, you could DM people on Twitter. I remember when Twitter was this nascent idea in 2006, and I was at a, at a bar actually, and Reed Hoffman's like, "You got to, I'm gonna introduce you to this guy. His name's Ed Williams, the founder of Twitter. And he previously had a company called Blogger.com, sold it for to, to Google, and then he started Odeo, which was a, uh, a podcasting platform. And then it wasn't working out. He thought that it would go from, I guess, long form text blogging to uh, what we what we know now is these podcasts are huge, right? Like to, he thought it was gonna go to audio podcast next. And uh, it didn't really quite happen that way. But when they were building that, it wasn't getting traction. I think Jack Dorsey is the one that might have developed uh, Twitter. I uh, was working at Odeo and uh, they became co-founders of Twitter. So I meet him and it's like, 
there was no DMing people back then, but like, I didn't understand the use case of it because it was pre iPhone when he came up with this. Right. So I really couldn't understand like, why, why would you use this versus, and I said this to, to Ev, I was like, why would you use Twitter to send out a message to a bunch of people? Why wouldn't you just create a, a contact in your phone, like college buddies or work friends and have them all in there and just do a group text message. And I'll never forget his answer. He's like, I mean, I guess you could do that. <laughs> it's like, he's not trying to convince me. <laughs> I was like, okay, gotcha. Um, so why would anybody else do it? He goes, I mean, maybe they won't. We like it. So we, we think it's cool. I was like, okay. I went back over to read. He's like, what'd you think? I was like, it's a terrible idea. <laughs> so you don't, you don't see everything. You know what I mean? Clearly Jack, Ev, all these guys totally got it. They, they, they were clearly seeing it. But really smart people didn't understand Twitter until the iPhone came out. And then it was really obvious. you know. But the iPhone, to your point, allows people to directly communicate with anybody today. It levels the playing field, I think, flattens the world. That didn't exist back then. You had to go to the conferences. You had to go to these different tech meetups and stuff and, and meet people. And I still think it's the best way. But the newer generation, like your generation, probably more so just meeting people through Twitter and stuff. Instagram. What was, what was the thought process behind selling the business? Like, you know, what, what got you to that point? And then also, like, walk us through the process of actually, like, doing, doing so in terms of, like, pitching it to people to, you know, potentially buy it. Yeah. So we were trying to raise capital. We hired an investment bank. We thought, well, we'll just go out and raise a large round of capital, take some money off the table. I had friends do this. They, they raise a little bit of capital, take some money personally off the table, uh, sell it to the investors and put the rest of it into the company. So we were having conversations with private equity firms and VC growth stage. And we had, we had hired a bank for that, an investment bank. Um, and then we went to this conference, once again, in person, right? Went to a conference uh, that they were hosting and there was a company on stage with a bunch of internet companies, but it was a cable company. And I always thought if we sold our company someday, the likely best suited buyer would be a media company, an old media company. So print, outdoor advertising, television, something like that. Uh, because they have large sales forces with established relationships with all these advertisers for the type of advertising that we, our platform provided for them, which was a demand side platform to allow hyper-local targeting where if you were a TV buyer for spot television cable buying, you might be buying advertising as a car dealership in what they call a DMA. And that DMA could be a larger area than your customers, or you might be crossing over to other car dealerships, right? But with online, you could obviously target right down to the zip code, right? Um, so it just, when I saw this guy on stage, I was like, you know what, introduce me to my banker. I was like, I want to talk to this guy. I just want to tell him what we're doing. Maybe we could do a joint venture somehow and leverage their sales team. And that evolved into acquisition discussions and then eventually evolved into an acquisition. Sweet. And then I, I kind of want to ask, like, what are some of those mistakes and I guess lessons that you learned along the way through that whole process of, of, you know, having a startup, like what, what were some of the biggest takeaways that, that, you know, you've talked to aspiring entrepreneurs or just in general, like to your investments moving forward? Um, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, the, the biggest thing is just be open-minded, right? Like I'm always open-minded and I try to surround myself with, uh, with like-minded individuals, but also I surround myself with people that are going to play, uh, uh, you know, the contrarian view a little bit. And so I, like I said to you earlier, I had a bunch of hedge fund guys that invested in my companies um, and they just view the world differently than us, right? I'm very optimistic, uh, eternal optimist when it comes to tech. And, um, and, and, and I, sometimes you have a tendency to not, things, not think that things will work out. You think they will work out is what I'm trying to say. These guys will come at me and they'll tell me all the reasons why it might not work out. And they're wrong most of the time, just so you know, right? So if they're watching, you're usually wrong. But they're helpful in making you reshape the way you think, right? Um, so that's always been a, a benefit for me is just I've always surrounded myself with a variety of different opinions. So I would just give anybody the advice of uh, try to build your network, try to surround yourself with a diverse um, uh, set of people's views around you. 
because if you're all just saying the same thing, you're in, I see notice it in the Bitcoin world a lot, the maxis, it's like, it becomes an echo chamber, right? So I don't want echo chambers in my life. I don't think it's very helpful for me. Um, it's great to have those relationships, but you should have the counterpart to that as well to challenge your thinking. I, I completely agree. I think that's, that's amazing advice. And like I implement implement that as well. And like my personal, my kind of circle of, of different traders or fund managers that I personally speak to, it's like, you know, I talk to people who have the direct opposite opinion and those tend to be, you know, the most valuable conversations that I have because it makes me realize, you know, blind spots that I'm not seeing in kind of my view of the market. So I uh, completely agree. Let's kind of transition to this, you know, post Yashi, um, you're now kind of settling down, right? Now just doing like some personal investments. And so when you kind of made this decision to take your foot off the gas, I mean, I think of having kids had a, had a large portion of this idea, like talk us through what was, what was your thought process in, in terms of the trade-offs between, you know, having more money and kind of freedom of time with your kids, et cetera. Um, you know, was it just, okay, like I reached X amount, you know, I don't need any more money. Um, like what, what made you decide to do so? Yeah. So like I, to sell the company was like, I had an opportunity to sell the previous company had we not been sued. <clears throat> I probably made over a hundred million dollars personally pre-tax and, and it went to zero. Right. So when I had an opportunity to sell this, they actually gave us a value. They, they gave us a price uh, on the, I had to keep walking it up by the way, in terms of negotiation and tax structure. I wanted to do an asset sale. I wanted it to be a stock purchase. You get more in your pocket, all this kind of stuff, right? Um, we were a C corporation. So you have this thing called qualified small business stock, QSBS, if you want to look that up. And uh, basically at the end of the day, we got more in our pocket, didn't have to pay tax on a certain amount of it from federal perspective. And there's all kinds of tax advantages and all this kind of stuff. So it's like you left money on the table. They gave us a price that, that wasn't favorable in terms of what our previous valuation was to the, to the price I thought we were able to sell it for but they were the buyer. And I said, okay, if I walk away from this um, and then something goes wrong, well, you know, I, I, I got to think about that for the rest of my life with, with my, with my kids, you know, like Jake, you screwed this up twice, man. You know? So I didn't want to, I don't want to be responsible for screwing that up. Um, so the discussions kept moving forward and then obviously it ended up being, being a, the acquisition that it was, <clears throat> but um, I was also tired, dude, like running a startup and managing people. And, uh, you know, I remember Reed was an investor in my company said to me, uh, one of the, one of the only questions he asked me actually to push back and understand who I was as a person. He's like, how important is it for you to be the CEO of WikiU? And how important is it for you to remain the CEO of WikiU? And I was like, this has got to be a test, right? <laughs> so I'm like, okay. Um, I go being the CEO and the title, I can care less, but I do think control is important. He's like, it's a good answer. He's like, you know, he was about to step down at that time as the CEO of LinkedIn, and uh, they put somebody else in. I think they replaced that person with uh, um, with with uh, the the current Jeff, the, the current uh, Jeff Weiner, I think, or the current CEO. Um, yeah, so so he took a step back, and he says, for him personally, he's like, I found that I just didn't really enjoy managing the company's personnel more than fifty people. It becomes a little political and stuff like that, and uh, it's a certain personality. And not that Reed couldn't have done it. He's like, of course I could. I just don't enjoy it, right? So um, he's like, and, and you should just be open. I was a young guy. I was in my twenties at the time. I was like. Okay, so I said I'm totally I'm totally cool with that. And to be honest with you, when Yashi was growing, we're like 60, 60 plus people and growing towards hundred. I was like, yeah, this isn't fun. Like, this is not my core competency. Now, could I get better at that and get mentors and advisors and all this kind of stuff? Yeah, of course. I just didn't want to. I, I just personally didn't want to do it. So personally, I know that I'm a startup guy, which is great as an investor because I can get in in the early stage, talk to founders, walk them through all the different things, product roadmap, you know, customer acquisition strategies, all this kind of stuff, right? Network, help them raise money, like all the stuff that a, a startup founder uh, needs from an angel investor, right? So I'm a great uh, series 
seed to series A type of an investor, right? I'm not a growth stage investor. Although I do make secondary purchases, but I'm not deploying lots of capital. It's personal capital, you know? Um, but yeah, so so for me, that that's that's kind of like the decisioning as, as to why I did that and, uh, and you know, kind of what, how it all pans out. At what point, I know you talked about kind of these early experiences you had with Bitcoin. At what point did you decide to kind of take a substantial position in it? And what's your Bitcoin thesis? Uh, and then as well as like, what's kind of your time horizon on that on that thesis? So time horizon is forever, right? I don't think that Bitcoin's going anywhere, right? So I'm not worried that Bitcoin's going to zero at this point. Um, back when I first heard about it, I was telling the customer, like it, that was not clear, right? The market cap was so small that, I mean, it just wasn't strong enough, right? I feel like we're at a, we're at a position today Sorry, we're at a we're at a position today where you know I I don't I, I think it's a sustainable runaway train, right? Um, so per, started part started buying it 2016 tw- end of 2016 throughout 2017 18. Um, like most people, didn't buy enough. Good news is I never sold, right? Like it, during those early years, I, I never sold. So I got my purchases and cost bases on those coins, very low cost bases, which is good. Uh, just didn't put deploy the amount of capital that I wish I did. Obviously, everybody says that, you know. Uh, so you build your conviction over time. Uh, I did not initially. Well, I viewed it as a trade. If you would buy a stock or something, I was like, man, I saw this. This customer kept begging me to do it. I didn't do it. The price keeps going up, up and down, but up generally. Like the direction is up, even though it's volatility going up. And I realized I've gotten this so fucking wrong. Like, man, what am I doing? So that's when I started buying. And I was just like, you know what? Just like anything else, if it was like Amazon stock, you know, you're looking at this thing, you're like, how does this make any sense? There's no profit. And then you start to realize how it makes sense. Same kind of thing happened with me. I started to understand the network externality aspect of this thing and that it is a runaway train, just like all network uh, Moore's Law type of businesses, you know? So that was the original thinking. And then when you go down the rabbit hole, really start to learn, which I got to tell you, was probably over the last year or two, right? When I really learned and built even stronger conviction, meeting a lot of the, the influencer, influential people in Bitcoin, like Preston Pish and others, kind of explaining it in a different way than I was thinking about it. And then cluing me in and saying, you need to read this book. You need to read that. But I'm like, oh my God. That's when I really was like, okay, I didn't understand Bitcoin. Thank God I was in it though. You know, but Jesus, I didn't understand it. Um, but now, now I totally understand it. So the thesis initially was just a trade. And then I realized uh, about 2018, I think, is when I, my, my radar kind of went off um, when uh, the Fed was increasing the interest rates from, so I sold my company in 2015, Will, and I basically got into a bunch of cash. So you had to invest in the market because interest rates were zero, right? So, but then they started increasing interest rates and I was really happy about that. I was like, oh, wow, we might actually have a risk-free rate that you could have a 60-40 portfolio at some point, right? Um, but then in 2018, on that last rate hike in December, the market sold off and I was like, wait a second, this is a little, this is a little crazy. So the Fed went on 60 minutes to talk down the market, calm down, ease everybody's concerns. We're, we're, we're gonna lower the interest rates again, just like you want, you know? They didn't say that, but that's essentially what they were saying. I was like, something isn't right about this. Like, it's the tail wagging the dog. Like, what, what, what's happening here? Um, that is when I really started to see that there's a problem in the country. I didn't exactly equate it the way I do now, but they are stuck at zero, right? It took me about another year of trying to figure this out. They're basically stuck at 0% interest rates. And as a result of that, there is no risk-free alternative anymore. So you have to figure out which risk asset you feel most comfortable with. And the best performing risk asset is clearly been Bitcoin. So if you don't have any exposure to Bitcoin, that's just ridiculous at this point. You got to have exposure to Bitcoin. Um, but then, you know, you, I just got off a call with uh, Eric Weiss a little while ago. He just was going to be on a guest on my show now. And so he talked about the orange pilling of Michael Saylor, but we also talk about that large institutional buyers and or high net worth individuals and family offices, they don't necessarily need Bitcoin if they can find a way to beat inflation. 
So if inflation's around 10% or so, real inflation, right? Uh, probably even higher right now. But if it, if it's that and you're sitting in a you're a real estate family and you have a ton of real estate and you're getting like a 30% uh, annually on your growth, like you don't really need Bitcoin. Eventually you'll you'll probably buy Bitcoin, but you, you, there's no urgency for them in, in the in the short term. They're just leaving money on the table by not investing in it. And they'll realize that over time and say, what the heck? We need to have some of this on our balance sheet. So for me, it was a monetary thing. I totally understand the aspects. Um, of Bitcoin from a humanitarian aspect and freedom and all that stuff. And I'm totally on board with it, but that's not why I invested. I wasn't trying to change the world, right? It's not what my, my intent was when I got into Bitcoin. It was just about my portfolio and my investments. Yeah. I, I tend to think like almost anyone who's saying that is probably LARPing unless they have like some kind of like humanitarian rights background or something, you know, uh, I think generally almost everyone comes in for the, for the number go up technology. As, as, and you uh, might stay you know, for the other as, as, as yeah, exactly. Sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what are like some of the biggest existential risks to Bitcoin that you see? Obviously in the short term, we're seeing a correction just because of yeah. you know, Fed talking about monetary tightening and, and the correlation that we've seen to like other, you know, risk on assets. And we can talk about it in a second, but just talking about the kind of like broader, you know, Bitcoin as a network over the longer term, what are some of those risks that you see to the thesis of, of being long Bitcoin? A lot of the risks are getting eliminated right before our eyes, right? Like last year, we saw um, for years, they were like, the risk is a 51% attack with China. And then they kicked everybody out. And I was like, well, I guess that's not a risk, right? So that, that you're, you're like slowly, and the other one was federal federal government in the US, maybe banning Bitcoin. And how will that impact? Because clearly, if they did, that, that would have a major impact to the price because you'd have a lot of selling, right? Um, for those that don't understand it's decentralized and all this stuff, you know? So they would just want to immediately sell because their narrative came true of their fears, right? But that's not happening either, right? Gensler, the MIT class, and all this kind of—that's not happening, right? So we can clearly see they've—they've they've, they have a position on how it's being taxed as property. We have all kinds of things that you know the, the things that Gensler said that like you know the alternative coins uh, are considered securities, whereas Bitcoin is considered a commodity. So I think that risk is gone. Um, you know, I think that the protocol risk is always a risk, I guess, potentially, right? There's, there's always potential risk there, but that's like anything. So you just got to factor in that risk is what the probability Neither is. of us are cryptographers. So if there's something no. wrong with the code, we're trusting on the, we're trusting the other people smarter <laughs> than us. <laughs> and, and by the way, if someone hears that and they say to myself, well, I can't get over that because, you know, okay, well, did you buy Amazon stock? Did you buy Facebook stock? Well, how much do you know about their technology? Like, let's get real, right? So it's, it's no different than anything. And I know it's not a company don't misconstrue what I'm saying. But the point is understanding that there are risks in everything and what is the probabilistic outcome of risk. And like you said, there's millions of people that have vetted this as well at this point. And it's been about 13 years now. I don't think that's a real credible risk at this point, right? Um, so I would really say that the biggest risk to Bitcoin in the shorter term, right, is about what we're probably going to talk about next, which is Federal Reserve. I, I just think the interest rates are kind of what made the, the bull case for Bitcoin uh, happen, right? You know, in terms of like the adoption rate and, and the speed of which, because uh, if you look at um, interest rates rising from 2015 to 2018, you look at the price of Bitcoin, it wasn't doing so well, right? When they started to crash the interest rates, the Bitcoin price starts to go parabolic. And it just seems to me that there's a direct correlation. There's an old saying, don't fight the Fed, right? Um, and I'm not fighting the Fed, but like at the end of the day, the Federal Reserve starts talking about we're going to taper, they start to taper, they accelerate the tapering. And then they say, we're going to raise the interest rates by March, which is only a couple months away. And then the markets risk off. That's just what they do, right? And Bitcoin's not an uncorrelated asset like we all originally thought it was years ago, at least the narrative was. It's clearly correlated after what we saw last year. So there's no question in my mind, the interest rates in the Fed are a risk. Now, if you talk to Greg Foss and others, they'll say, there's no risk because they really can't raise interest rates that high. They'll have to eventually, it's just math, it'll, it'll break, right? In terms of like the bond markets. 
I'm no expert at that either. Just like I'm not an expert at cryptography, right? So like, we'll say, I keep doing interviews on my show and I ask people what their thoughts are. Plan B I just had and, and Eric Weiss and others. And I'm, I'm really curious, like how far can the Fed push things? I don't know. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like the on the correlation thing, I think, you know, maybe you could have made that argument in the past because it was such a retail driven asset. But now that we've seen all these institutions come in, like now you have seen all those correlations like really get reinforced over like the last year. So now that you have like all these like macro traders and you know, just like trad five funds that have been taking positions. So like, that's kind of like the double-edged sword of everyone's talking about like institutions are going to come in and just like diamond hand this forever. It's like, you mm. know, on the other end of that, we've seen, you know, whenever you have, you know, risk off, you know, behavior in, in traditional markets, then you see that translate into Bitcoin as well. Um, yeah. And, and like, what do you think, uh, you know, Bitcoin would look like in a, you know, non- uh, inflationary environment because obviously like Bitcoin, you know, was created after 2008, post 2008, they've been doing QE since then. So it's like, we really don't know what Bitcoin would look like if we were in some kind of, you know, deflationary environment, whether that's possible, I'm not you know, going to make that argument. I don't think it's possible. So it's a hard thing to really think yeah. through, but I, I agree with you. I, I just don't think it's really that possible. Um, but this is the argument that I was making with Eric earlier today when I was talking to him. It's like, you know, Michael Saylor, it seems to me, that the biggest catalyst for him to push his chips into Bitcoin wasn't what he was, wasn't aware about it, aware of it rather. <clears throat> he had five hundred million dollars in cash on the balance sheet, and his software business was generating about fifty billion. Sir, uh, fifty million. Am I saying that right? He had five hundred million in cash and fifty million a year in uh, in cash flow and EBITDA. And uh, and he looked at it. He's like, well, we have ten percent inflation, so I'm losing fifty million dollars on the cash I'm sitting in, in treasuries on. And my guys, thousand plus, two thousand employees are running on a hamster wheel trying to get the fifty million to catch up the money that we're being debased on. So he was looking for some something to offset that, and uh, and that's when you know he's thinking about Bitcoin, obviously, because of the conversations he was having with Eric over the years. Um, if it, you know, if there wasn't this amount of inflation happening and that much money printing, I don't know, if Michael Seller would be in Bitcoin. I, I don't know, maybe he would, but it just seems like that was something that kind of pushed pushed him in as well as others like mass mutual and others right they're thinking about that so if that can get fixed i don't know if again but if they can decrease inflation and increase interest rates it pulls some demand out of the market but as eric says it's the scarcest asset on the planet there's 60 million millionaires there's not even enough full bitcoins to go around but the 21 million total that would be created there's always going to be a case just like there is for any asset that's a scarce asset there's always going to be the case for uh, for demand into that asset just because of the scarcity of it. So that alone, even in the deflationary world, you're going to want to own Bitcoin because they're not making any more of it. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And like part of why I'm so bullish on Bitcoin long term is because it has this like what I what I've been calling it to sound smart is ideological malleability. Right. It, it can be anything. It can be several different narratives. Right. Like Bitcoin yes. can be a payment network. It can you know be an inflation hedge. Uh, it can be a network effect, right? It can be all these different narratives or different titles. And that's what makes it so evasive to being shot down from, you know, one specific narrative, you know, subsiding. So it's like, to me, that, that, that's what makes Bitcoin so unique because it can be so many different things. Like you can't just pinpoint and say Bitcoin is one thing. You can't say right. Bitcoin is digital real estate. It is, but that's not what the sole, you know, the sole thing that that it can be. So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, and I think like over time, even in even if we were in a theoretical, you know, deflationary environment, even just the network effect and you know just this growing network of Bitcoin, yep. then that could be the narrative for Bitcoin. You know, it it can you know, be. So, yeah. One thing I, I remember when Michael Saylor did that talk with Ross Stevens earlier last year, and Ross was talking about 
how like large shipping companies and stuff are doing transactions, they're going to be wanting to use Bitcoin because they could use the US dollar sent across the lightning network, right? And when it lands in Germany or something like that, it lands in their, in their dollar, right? And it's using Bitcoin for instant transaction, very low fees, instant uh, accessibility. Those are the kind of things that, yeah, like Bitcoin has a use case in many different areas other than the store of value area, right? So there's going to be like the Lightning Network, I think is just going to be huge for Bitcoin as well. It's certainly nothing like huge yet, but I, I do see like, and, and all technologies, you can't look at where it's at today. You got to project out, how is this going to grow exponentially over the next 10 or 20 years? And there's just going to be enormous growth within the Lightning Network as well as the Bitcoin overall activity, you know? Yeah, totally. That's a really good point. Um, last question on Bitcoin. Um, when we talk about like hyper Bitcoinization, what are some of the events that you kind of see that could accelerate that process? So like my kind of, you know, the way I'm visualizing, visualizing this in my head is like, you know, if you play like Mario Kart, you go through these like hoops or rings and they give you a little boost, right? Like when we talk about this process of, of, of Bitcoin becoming, you know, uh, the global monetary premium, like what are some of those events uh, that, that, you know, in the future you, you think could kind of accelerate that? I mean, I think like, the you know adoption from from El Salvador has been like a huge one and kind of like the domino effect or like game theory of that. I think we're, we've yet to see that play out. But um, what are some of the some what are some of those things that that you think could kind of um, have those effects in your mind? Yeah, there there's a thing I would say. There's the three types of knowledge. There's the things you know, you know, the things you know you don't know, and the things you don't know you don't know. And hyperbitcoinization is going to come from the third. It's going to come from the things we don't know we don't know. It's going to be an exogenous event of some sort that creates a collapse of the dollar, I think. And now when that happens, if you talk to like DJ Boyapati, he's like within the next 50 years, <laughs> right? So I might not be around for it. You might, <laughs> I might not be around for it, right? Um, but maybe I will, right? And, and there's a lot of people in the Bitcoin community that say, you know, uh, it's, it's gradually, then it's slow than um, suddenly, right? This slowly, suddenly argument. And um, that's just the way exponential growth is. Um, how that happens, it, there has to be some catalyst and so I think what it is going to relate to, it's going to relate to all the debt where we have a debt bubble. It's going to be some kind of a crack that we don't see, like they didn't see mortgages for a while, right? There's going to be some kind of a crack that happens, or it's a federal, it's a federal reserve monetary policy error where they think they can push it further than they can. And then there's a loss of confidence within the dollar or the Fed and the thing unravels. And when it unravels very rapidly, where are you going to go? As I tell my hedge fund friends that have managed lots of money. Um, they, they made a comment to me recently that this, this guy, I know he's like, uh, how do you hedge Bitcoin? And I came back, retorted with the question. I said, well, let me ask you a question. You know, you're an equity guy. So how do you hedge your equities? So he tells me his strategy on hedging equities. He goes, okay, now that I told you my strategy, he texted me, what's your strategy on hedging Bitcoin? I said, how do you hedge those hedges? He's like, yeah, funny guy. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm serious. Bitcoin is the hedge, right? That's the, it's the hedge to the dollar, right? So if they can't see that and you think the dollar is not collapsing anytime soon, the next question I had is, do you think the dollar can collapse? So of course it can. All dollars will eventually collapse. Do you think it's going to happen in our lifetime? No, I do not. We went into a whole discussion. I want to rehash that one. I said, do you think it's 0% chance or is it a greater than 0% chance that the dollar can collapse? And he says, of course, it's a greater than 0% chance. Anything, anything's possible. I was like, and you have no hedge on it. Because let me ask you the next question. How quickly will it collapse when it does? We can see this in other countries, right? It's within days, bro, right? Like, yeah, it's like, bang, caught, lost count. So if your assets are denominated in dollars and you have dollars in treasuries, you're fucked. It's over, right? Like you need to have uh, some uncorrelated asset, even though Bitcoin will drop dramatically in a dollar collapse because people won't know what they're doing. They're going to start selling everything for the thing, the underlying thing itself that is collapsing, which is crazy. I mean, think about it. But when that starts to accelerate, 
the last thing you'll need to, you're going to have to be in is something that's liquid that can provide a payment system of some sort that is not the dollar or associated with the dollar. And that would be Bitcoin, right? Um, you could argue it could be another cryptocurrency possibly, but I, I just don't see that that's real sustainable. They're not truly decentralized, et cetera, rather than wasting our time on that. Assuming that that is, is, is Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin's hyper-Bitcoinization happens from some exogenous event that we just don't know about yet that probably relates to debt and an unraveling of the system. Yeah, I, th I think you made a really good point there in terms of like, this is what I actually used to kind of put my dad over the edge. I was like, well, what do you think, you know, again, like you said, like, what do you think the likelihood of the dollar collapsing is? Or, you know, conversely, like, what do you think the likelihood of, of Bitcoin succeeding is? It's like, well, it's not zero. So it's like, okay, well, <laughs> take a position. You know, if you think it, there's a 1% chance that the dollar, the dollar will collapse, or you think there's a 1% chance that Bitcoin will be, you know, 100x from here. You know, then take a one percent position. Buy one percent. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So I mean, that that's like the same thing in trading. Like you know, you take positions according to you know what the probabilities of the situation are. You know, it's just you're you're trading essentially with like a longer term time horizon. But yeah, complete completely agree uh, with what you just said. So moving on from Bitcoin, uh, last two questions. First of all, like in terms of your podcast, um, kind of talk about the process of starting your podcast uh, briefly, and then I want to ask what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned from talking to all these successful guys? So you're talking to all these, you know, really, you know, well-to-do people um, who, you know, have made a name for themselves often, you know, self-made. Uh, what are some of the kind of like common commonalities between these people that you've noticed? So I had a podcast about a decade ago and it was called Behind the Web. I changed the name as I do with most things. And it was then the call Foundville. And so I brought guys on like Sean Rad, founder of Tinder before he had Tinder. He had a company called Adley. Um, James Hong, how or not, uh, all these like tech guys, they were all founders of tech companies. And the reason I did that is the previous company I had before that, we were in New York City and people would just literally stop in the office. Like, like Mark Pincus one time just like hits us up in an email, I'll be in the city next week. Um, mind if I stop by the office? And he was running tribe.net at the time. So we had guys like this constantly coming in. Raj Kapoor, who ended up investing in one of my companies, actually stopped in to talk about a potential partnership with one of his portfolio companies called Tagged. Uh, and I flew out and met Greg and John, the founders of that company. It was just like, it was happening because I'm in the city. We were a large scale business that everybody was aware of at the time. And so people would just stop by, right? A lot of founders of different companies and stuff. Um, when I left after that company closed and I started my own company, I went back down to Jersey where I'm from. Nobody was like driving in and saying, hey, we're going to stop in your office in Jersey, right? So I started the podcast at the time. It was just made maybe mostly about like just networking with people, um, you know, and that's why I did it then. Um, and then I got on Clubhouse last year and was talking with like Jason Williams a lot and American Hoddle, as you, you know, and Preston was jumping in the rooms. I had the Digital Gold Room Club rather on Clubhouse. And, uh, and just talking to these guys, and I was like, this is cool. Why not just document this stuff from a content perspective and put create another YouTube channel? Why not? You never know where these things lead. Who knows, you know? Uh, and my wife kind of pushed me. She was like, you know, you're so annoying. Would you just stop, like, annoying me and the kids all day? You know, you should go do the podcast thing, because I talked about it a few times. She's like, I think you should do it. You should do it. So I started to do that. And I started to bring on, I had access to a lot of different people. And I brought, you know, Scaramucci was my first guest. He's a friend of mine. So that kind of kickstarted things. CJ Wilson was my second guest, former baseball player, obviously, Bitcoiner has a bunch of car dealerships and it just kind of snowballed, right? Like you're doing now. It just one thing led to another. And I mean, your story is really interesting. You, know, you came on the show obviously a couple of times, but like you just came out of nowhere and it was like, boom, meteor. Like, you know, cause what you do is, is great content. People love price action, but the way you do it, your humility, you, you've done a phen phenomenal job of what you've done. And I just was like, you know, what? let me, let me go and create this podcast and talk to Bitcoiners and learn more about Bitcoin. But I do a variety of types of guests. It's mostly about, to your point, it's about the mindset of high achievers. So I bring people on that have either professional athletes, authors, entrepreneurs, investors. These are the kind of people I bring on. 
And uh, I just want to understand the way they think. I'm just very curious about what motivates people, um, why they started what they did. And once they've made it, you know, they've made a lot of money because I'm one of those people. You never have to work again. I always say, if you have money, you can die with, right? You have money, you're going to die with. Why are you trying to make more money? Like, why are you wasting your time? We've already have the end goal for me. And it's different for everybody. Uh, some people want to make a great impact like somebody like Elon Musk. Uh, I want to have generational wealth for my kids, my grandkids and so on. So I keep working. I work on behalf of my kids. That's why I do what I do. So for me, it's uh, it's a networking play. It's to learn more from people uh, and to gain access to investments. I've gotten to a lot of investments by podcasting, right? Nobody's handing me anything, but they're giving you access. Would you like to co-invest with us on this? Absolutely. That's what I do. So, so to me, it's just, it's just been great. Awesome. And then uh, final question, can you give some life alpha to listeners? So we talk, you usually have like a lot of, a lot of trader guys yeah. on, we'll say like, you know, give us some, some market, you know, something to, to help, uh, you know, traders that are listening, you know, get edge in the market. So I guess for, for you, I would ask, you know, what, what is, what is uh, some alpha that you can give to people to help get an edge in life? Number one advice, Warren Buffett says it. I agree with it. Choose your partner wisely. So I was lucky. I met my wife, uh, when she was working at the company that went out of business, right? Um, she was our top salesperson at the time. And uh, the next business I started was nothing with her or anything. I started this social media thing like you. And when that didn't work out, I went back to Aaron and Lou and I was like, why don't we start this ad tech company? And they were like, I'm not interested. <laughs> so I went back to her, we were dating and I said, uh, hey, I, I know what I'm doing as a founder. Like, I'm pretty sure this is going to be a success. Uh, it's not going to be a billion dollar outcome, but it's, it's going to do well. And I go, do you want to join me on this journey? And she did. And so we were, we were dating, we were partners, but we, we talked about things that most people I know that have relationships people don't talk about. We talked about what do, I, what do we want for our kids? What do we want? Um, we talk about money. A lot of people don't talk about money, right? They don't talk about all of those things. You got to have these open conversations with the people that you're with um, because your partner can be a hindrance or they can help you, right? And so with my wife, Caitlin, she's been my biggest champion, my biggest supporter. Um, she implicitly trusts me and believes in everything I'm doing. And, uh, and is, is just like, really, she's a strong supporter that I have. And so like, you, you really need that because you can't do this on your own, man. I, I have friends um, that were trying to be entrepreneurial and their wife or their girlfriend kind of get in the way. They're like, oh, well, we got to go out with our friends or this or that. Bro, in my 20s, I didn't go out, okay? I literally just worked. I worked for 10 years straight. When I first met her, we were together. and we, we didn't go on any vacations, nothing. It was just go, 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 go. Because I genuinely enjoyed doing what I was doing. And I wanted to get, I didn't want a distraction of any sort, right? Um, and she was totally supportive of that. Other people may not have been supportive of that. And in the tech world, you are running a marathon at a pace of a sprinter, right? That's the way I say it. So I was just running really, really fast. I was watching other people kind of like, oh, I'll just get there slower. You're not going to get there at all. Not when I'm competing with you. I'm going to blow you out of the water. And people are trying to blow me out of the water, right? Um, you need a supportive person in, in your in your partner, in my opinion. That's probably the number one hack, life hack I give you. Hey, Jay, I just want to say thank you. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This was, this was awesome. Um, I do want to give you just a you know little uh, plug here for, for your podcast as well as your, your Twitter. Your, your account's been blowing up lately. You're up to like, what, like 70, <laughs> 70K or something. Not like you. You got like 500,000 in like two months. <laughs> No, it's, it's been awesome. No, to, it's been awesome to see your growth. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, once, once you get over like 75, then like the starts to compound of it, you'll be at like, you know, 150, 200 in no time. But yeah, I, I want to give you an opportunity to, to plug those in. Uh, I do listen to, to Jay's podcast. So for anybody listening, definitely check it out. Thanks, Will. Appreciate it. Um, what can you just like tell people where to, to, where sure. to go? You to just go yep. Just, just go. It's uh, at 
J-A-Y-G-O-U-L-D show, right? That's the YouTube. So it's slash J-A-Y-G-O-U-L-D show. And if you just go on my, my uh, Twitter, it's just my name, J-A-Y-G-O-U-L-D. And I think there's a link in the bio to my, to my podcast on YouTube. We also have the audio podcast as well on Spotify for those that are watching the video. So Sweet. Well, thank you so much, Jay. And uh, everybody, thank be you. sure to check out those uh, two links that, that Jay just mentioned. So appreciate you coming on and take it easy, man. Thanks, bro.